Oh Lord, we celebrate this morning the power of your great name. As we have seen in your scriptures of late, the evidence of your powerful name is recorded for us in the transformation of Nineveh. When just a few words, a verse as it were, changed the hearts of 120,000 people sweeping across this pagan land with the fires of revival and repentance. Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be destroyed, wrung in their ears as they gathered sackcloth and ashes and repented before the God they knew had the power to destroy them. And they also knew had the power to save them. And so a city was brought to its knees. We see during the exile that Belshazzar seeking to bring mockery and fame to your name and fame to himself takes the temple vessels and in a drunken party begins to defile the things that are holy and set apart and sacred. And the power of your name is seen when you wrote with your own hand on the wall of that palace. You are weighed in the balances and found wanting. And in an hour, the most powerful kingdom of that day was overturned, destroyed, and your enemies were taken captive, and the tables of justice turned. As you said to that powerful king, this far and no farther, I am king of kings. We see when the word became flesh and dwelt among us that kings, rulers, religious leaders shook in their boots and could not handle the self-attesting authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, become flesh, born of virgin, proclaiming their doom lest they repent. And so they killed Him, yet the grave could not hold our Lord, and He rose from the dead. More than rise, He ascended unto the session of His rule before the Father, and He lives and reigns today, making intercession for us and bringing His enemies under His feet. We see that one verse, Romans 1.17, in it, that is, the gospel is the power of salvation to all who believe. It's from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith, turn the world upside down at the Reformation. And a few unlikely vessels began to proclaim that truth is found in Christ alone and salvation comes by grace through faith alone. And 500 years of history were written in so many ways, by your sovereign hand intervening in an era of great spiritual darkness with the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ as your word went forth. And so this morning, we pray that you would awaken us by your word. We pray that through its proclamation, our hearts would be transformed. That we would repent of sin, that cloudy vision and spiritual tendencies away from the assurance of the way that we know leads to life, Lord. We pray that they would be abandoned in light of truth. We pray that you would equip us and strengthen us, Lord, for a day when our faith will be tested that we might stand under any type of persecution. We pray, Lord, that you would draw unto yourself sinners that they may, might repent and place their faith in Christ through the proclamation of your word. And as you do these things, it will be a testimony once again to your great name. Not of us, but of your glory. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. What an incredible, priceless privilege it is. 
to open the Scriptures together and to behold the Word of God. I would encourage you to open your Bible with me to Hebrews chapter 12. This morning is Communion Sunday and another installment in our series going through this book verse by verse, the great epistle to the Hebrews as it were. The title of this morning's message is Holiness Highway. You could say the way of holiness, the pathway of righteousness, the direction, the goal, the aim, the day-to-day life and lifestyle of the Christian life is part and parcel to the application of this great message of the book of Hebrews, especially towards the end, and we find this shift in chapter 12. And this morning we will consider several verses from this chapter, verses 12 through 17. The aim of this sermon today is that we may taste the promises of God through faith and thereby persevere. Through the proclamation of God's Word today, may we taste the promises of God through faith and thereby persevere. This was a great demand, a great need. There was a great lack, in fact, of walking according to the promises of God in faith. And therefore, the church to whom the author was writing was struggling with perseverance, even as we oftentimes can relate. We struggle in our Christian walk to endure. Where do we turn in times like this? This book teaches us exactly where. We turn to Christ, and we do so remembering the the surety of the promises of God that are ours through faith. Would you stand with me with your Bible open out of reverence for the Word of God, and let us behold these verses today. Again, Hebrews 12, 12 through 17. Here we have the immutable, infallible Word of Christ. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet. What is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. Verse 17, for you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Sobering words, yet hopeful at the same time. Let us consider the highway of holiness, the way of righteousness. The author of Hebrews extends his race analogy, if you will, building upon his description, his descriptive metaphor of the Christian life, He does so with scriptural references this time, reinforcing the concept as he alludes to the (coughs) Old Testament. Turning back a little bit in our text today, Hebrews 12.1, we recall where he has introduced this concept of a race as it were with spectators. Therefore, he says, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, 
who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. So you see we have the theme repeated in these prior verses. Race, direction, way, also um, a goal, an end, uh, also endurance, perseverance, looking to Christ who modeled these things perfectly and preeminently. It says of him in the final portion of verse 2, he despising the shame of Christ, it says, despising the shame, he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And it goes on to say we are to consider him that we might stand in the day of testing. The author of Hebrews thus employs witnesses covenant history to emphasize the sobering necessity of endurance in the Christian life. He employs the witness of Christ in what we've just read, but in our text today, he reaches back further to the Old Testament, and he gathers examples, three different ones we'll consider today, to emphasize, again, the sober necessity of endurance in the Christian life, which charts its path of gospel living on the way of holiness. The author seeks to emphasize, again, the sober necessity of endurance. It is absolutely essential. In the Christian life, perseverance, in this Christian life charts its path, its direction of gospel living on the way of holiness, the highway of holiness, if you will. His admonition, the author's admonition, calls attention to our application of his words with respect to three different relationships, ourselves, others, and our relationship with the Lord. This is a trifold scheme you often see in Scripture, but notice in Hebrews 12, 12, Therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet. So consider yourself, your own walk. For, uh, he encourages us, exhorts us toward gospel introspection, taking inventory of where we stand. He says that this is necessary so we may not become lame and things like uh, our ligaments put out of joint, but rather healed. But then he goes on, verse 14, strive for peace with everyone. So now having done some self-assessment, he encourages us to embrace a relationship with other people that also is characterized by holiness and this gospel assessment. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And then thirdly, of course, he, he exhorts us to see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And there we see our relationship with the Lord. So three categories to assess along the way in our Christian life, especially as we consider it in light of the imperative toward holiness. Where are we in our own heart? Where are we in our relationship with others? How do we stack up in our relationship with the Lord? We are to consider these things in course, in the course of our Christian life. If we do not, the admonition is clear. We will become lame, disabled, atrophied. We will become handicapped. And we will no longer be able to run with endurance and success our race. Consider ourselves. Consider our relationship with others. Consider your relationship with the Lord. This appeal is highlighted with poetic beauty He's embraced this metaphor and is expanding it masterfully as a great author of incredible literature, the author of Hebrews. But not only this, he also employs theological genius. 
as he draws from the theme-rich material of prior revelation, namely the Old Testament, to underscore his closing applications to the church among the Hebrews. Surely the Spirit-prepared Jewish heart, as we recount the background of this literature that we read today, was first and foremost addressed to those who presumably had a Hebrew background. The Spirit-prepared Jewish heart would be moved by the weight of his Old Testament allusions that we see in our text today. As, they, uh, my, as their mind, the reader's mind, recalled each reference in context. And as they produced their desired effect, the reader would surely pick up his pace, run faster. Pick up his pace in his quest for Christ-likeness. Gaining by this text, by this book, the book of Hebrews, an inspired second wind. This church was in need of a second wind in their life marathon. Barnes comments on these passages. I, I like what he says to summarize the effectiveness of Hebrews chapter 12. He says, The hope of victory will do much to strengthen one almost exhausted in battle. Let's pause there. Imagine a scenario where you're um, fighting and your muscles begin to grow weary and sore. There's a charley horse in your forearm as your sword just reaches up one more time. And in the din and the noise, the dust and the smoke and the waning light of evening, you begin to give up hope. Is this a worthless endeavor? Where are my comrades? I'm, am I standing alone? And suddenly in your ears behind you, you hear a charge. You hear a roar of victory and triumph and there's the cavalry behind you and your comrades now on horses with shining armor and lances sharpened come up beside you. And how do you feel at that moment? Freshly invigor invigorated, ready to fight another day. And suddenly your arm feels young again and you have strength to continue. The book of Hebrews is like this. It provides this second wind. Barnes goes on. The desire to reach home invigorates the frame of the weary traveler when he sees the light of his own home in the distance. Having traveled days upon end, he quickens his pace no matter how long he's been traveling. So it is with the Christian in persecution, he goes on, and sickness and bereavement. He may be ready to sink under his burdens. The hands fall, the knees tremble, the heart sinks within us. But confidence in God and the hope of heaven and the assurance that all this is for our good will invigorate the enfeebled frame and enable us to bear what we once supposed would crush us to dust. A courageous mind embraces feeble, a feeble body and hope makes it fresh for new conflicts. Last line again, a courageous mind embraces a feeble body, and hope makes it fresh for new conflicts. That is the intended effect of Hebrews 12, and it will have that effect upon our soul as the Spirit is pleased to use it as a means to quicken our pace in this high, on this highway of holiness. Now, I've mentioned to you there are three allusions, at least, to Old Testament passages in these verses that we're considering today, verses 12 through 17. So let us consider them in their context. Because I am convinced the author intends, intends or he supposes that the reader has some familiarity with them. And as we 
our mind is brought back to the context of these references that he mentions seemingly in passing, suddenly what he says carries that much more punch, that much more weight, because it has the force of Isaiah 35 behind it. It has the force of Deuteronomy 29 behind it. It has the force of Genesis 25 and 27 behind it. Not just his words, but the testimony of all of Scripture. Here's a heading. Three Old Testament passages employed for New Testament exhortation. So three Old Testament Scriptures, Scripture passages that are used, that are employed, that are useful for New Testament, or you can say in light of the context of Hebrews, New Covenant exhortation. The first subpoint or the first main point under this heading is redeemed shall walk. The redeemed shall walk. That's a phrase taken from Isaiah 35. You can take another phrase. The ransomed of the Lord shall return. In this reference, Isaiah 35, 1 through 10, that kind of surrounding text, our author draws from eschatological, that is, end times or future-oriented promises that were given to Israel and who Israel represents to encourage the faithful in exile. And the author of Hebrews draws from this prophetic context of Isaiah 35 to encourage the church of Hebrews in something of an exile of their own, at least a pilgrimage, a journey unto glory. This is fitting with the context that he has given us all the way back to chapter 4, where he compares the experience of the Israelites and their Sabbath rest that they looked forward to and pictured in God's construction of the godly week, culminating with the Sabbath, with what will culminate at the end of history. And so we see that this is a pattern that he uses. Turn back with me to that text if you would. Let's go back to Isaiah 35 for a moment. How will the redeemed walk? The redeemed shall walk in a particular way. The ransom of the Lord shall return. Notice in the, in the context of this scripture, against, again, the theological genius, the concept of race that he is employing, the author is employing in Hebrews 11 is very fitting because there's similar themes in Isaiah 35 as well. First of all, um, listen to verses 1 through 3 as Isaiah prophesies in these words to the exiled, to exiled Israel. He says, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of God. And then notice this, uh, this verse, particularly in verse 3. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Does that sound familiar? In Hebrews 12, remember the admonition, verse 12? Therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. He's getting that verse right out of Isaiah 35. But that passage, this admonition, this encouragement to strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees, knees has been preceded by a prophecy of forthcoming glory. The redeemed walk, the author is saying, Isaiah is saying the redeemed walk in light of forthcoming glory. Promised and prophesied glories 
that are yet on the horizon. This is pictured in the prophetic and poetic language as a wilderness blooming with new plant, plant life. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad, the desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. Surely the readers of Hebrews could relate to this kind of thing. The wilderness, well describing their experience, riddled as we see in context with persecution and sorrows, discouragement and despair. Yes, Christ has risen from the dead. Truly, I believe that is the case. But it would be easier to believe it if I was standing in front of his glorified body speaking these truths to me right now. But right at this moment, I'm threatened at any day with a knock on the door dragging me away to join in prison my fellow believers. And I risk my very life to join them every time I visit them <coughs> behind bars. This is a wilderness. I signed up for a life of holiness that is fraught with discouragement and persecution and fearful circumstances where it seems like the powers of the day have the upper hand as they drag my fellow believers off to jail. Well, we're reminded in the context of Isaiah 35 that though it may be a wilderness now, it will one day bloom. And what is the dry land of persecution today shall blossom abundantly tomorrow upon the Lord's return or upon Him pouring out His Spirit through the proclamation of His Word and the jailer whom you've been witnessing to under these circumstances suddenly asks, Brothers, what must I do to be saved? As songs are lifted up from the throats of Paul and Silas in the Ephesian jail, they didn't know the walls would crumble. The desert of their sorrowful experience, the desert of their discouraging circumstances, suddenly blooms, bloomed forth with life as God sent by His sovereign hand an earthquake to break their bonds, and then gave by His sovereign word through their confession the message of salvation to the man who is responsible for keeping them in this place in the first place. Paul and Silas knew in this moment what it was like to live in light of the promises of God, forthcoming glories. If this doesn't happen in these types of circumstances, even in our own life, it will certainly happen in the next. And this is the key to walking in a manner worthy of our call. This is a key to the Christian life. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord and the majesty of our God. So in light of this, again, strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees. Isaiah 35, we see not only forthcoming glories, but we see also the promise of forthcoming vindication. Verses 4 through 7, the prophet continues, Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God, meaning repayment. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning, burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. This uh, year, 
I was spoke briefly at a funeral for Dorothy Landy. And Pastor Barry Height was there. If you don't know him, he's in a wheelchair. He suffered an accident in his late teens. You know, I suspect he's in his 60s now. And since that day, he has been paralyzed from the waist down. So four men had to each get a corner of his wheelchair and lift him up onto the stage before he gave the message at Dorothy's funeral. As he rolled to the front, he opens up his scripture and he begins to share that there are forthcoming glories and that there is forthcoming vindication for those who suffer in the wilderness right now. He did so in the context of, this de of death because that was the occasion for the funeral, of course. As we had said goodbye for a little while to Dorothy, who is with Christ today. But he also confessed this verse. He says, Then the lame man shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute shall sing for joy. And he said that was his favorite. And you can tell why. Because he himself was in a wheelchair. What, gave, what gives such a strong faith to this man? And he, this man and I, I mean, we, we talked and all I did was listen and ask questions. Because he had a life experience of trusting in the Lord that was a profound testimony. Someone like myself who has not been put to the same test. And as I listened, it was very clear that in spite of his wheelchair, this man knew how to run. He ran on the way of holiness. He was not lagging in his race towards godliness. And he had more sorrows than just the loss of his limbs that he spoke of. But he determined to place his faith in future glory. He knew, according to Isaiah 35, that vindication was on the horizon. That there, was coming, that there is coming a day when all who are in Christ will rejoice with bodies resurrected perfectly restored in the new heavens and new earth. And that is how he walks, even though he's in a wheelchair. The redeemed shall walk. They shall walk according to forthcoming glories when they place their affections and their minds and their memories and their hearts upon the reality of God's promises of forthcoming glory and forthcoming vindication. Not just a vindication that will heal what's broken and sick and lame, out of joint and so on, but also vindication that will bring a strong vengeance and recompense of God against His enemies who seem to have the last laugh so often in our daily news cycle. That will not always be the case. There is forthcoming vindication. So we need not be discouraged by this either. We live in such a wicked land. Even today we were in conversation in morning prayer and someone brought up to me a conversation where a person, a confessing Christian, was having doubts because it seems that in spite of what the truth of the Bible says, it's contradicted by so much of his own experience and what's happening around. Well, it's easy to grow cynical if you look merely to the things that are happening in this little snapshot window of opportunity that we have. But let me tell you, history long precedes us and history will continue long after we are gone from this mortal coil. And if you look through the perspective of Scripture on history prior and history prophesied, you will find great reason to walk with confidence and clarity and boldness and, and surety, knowing that there is forthcoming glory, forthcoming vindication, and no one ultimately mocks God and gets away with it. This is how the redeemed walked. 
And finally, from Isaiah 35, there's forthcoming consecration. Forthcoming holiness in chapter, again, 35, 8 through the end, a highway shall be there. Notice, again, the imagery of walking in a race. It coincides with the imagery that Isaiah uses. A highway shall be made there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there. Listen, but the redeemed shall walk there. The redeemed walk on the way of holiness. Verse 10, And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Amen. Future consecration. Future holiness forthcoming, purifying force of the gospel's inworking power, working its way out to transform us into His image and to remove the wickedness and the stains of sin even from the environment of this world until such a day as the only thing that exists in our experience among us to give Him glory is the redeemed who now return, realizing the full promise of salvation with singing and joy as is pictured in Revelation, singing, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain and casting their crowns before Him eternally with gladness and sorrow and sign, death, pain, disease, sin are a thing of the past, forever in the past. Praise His holy name. This idea of holiness, it speaks to sanctification. It is the trajectory. It is the goal, the telos, the end It is the changing work of the Spirit that is evidenced in the heart of a believer who is walking on the highway that God has laid before us. And it means to set apart, to sanctify. It means separated for sacred use. And God is doing this as He leads us down a path of discipline, as Hebrews 12 describes. Perhaps He does so in part to make us less comfortable with our sin, more dependent on Christ. And perhaps through these fiery trials, you begin to realize that He is something that you must cling to. He is someone that you must cling to with white-knuckled intensity and never let go because you do so at the peril of being weak and wobbly in your knees, of losing your will to continue in Christ. And so even through the pathway of discipline, we learn that God is using these things, the purifying fires, the tempering grace of affliction, to set us apart for sacred use. Old Testament passages employed for New Testament exhortation, how the redeemed walk from Isaiah 35. Secondly, let us consider another reference, root of bitterness. In Hebrews 12:14, we are exhorted, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Now this is a reference in passing as well to Deuteronomy 29 while you're turning there. Note that this is an example from from a redemptive historical context. Isaiah 35 drew an example 
Old Testament passage for New Testament exhortation from a prophetic context. This root of bitterness is in a redemptive, or you could say covenantal, historical context. It comes in context of admonition to national Israel to walk in a manner that commensurate with their relationship, with their covenant with the Lord. Under root of bitterness, we find in the text of Deuteronomy 29 that this is a solemn occasion that apostasy is poison and that God ultimately has the last word. And again, these are things in context that keep us on the path as we consider them, as we meditate upon them. So we go to Deuteronomy 29 to gather this context. First of all, note the solemn occasion, 29.1. These are the words of the covenant that the Lord commanded Moses to make with the people of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant that he made with them at Horeb. So this is a solemn occasion where the people are called to witness and to stand before the Lord, and he will demonstrate to them the terms, he will clearly reveal the terms and conditions of their relationship with him. Everyone had better pay attention. Take seriously, we could gather in principle, the word of the Lord. In verse 10, we see something of this. You are standing today, all of you, before the Lord your God, the heads of your tribes, your elders and your officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and the sojourner who is in your camp, from the one who chops down your wood to the one who draws your water, so that you may enter into the sworn covenant of the Lord your God, which the Lord your God is making with you today. This, again, is a solemn occasion. When you come to Christ, it is a solemn occasion. It really bothers me many times. Perhaps I overreact. But when I see gimmicks and tricks that are designed to draw people to a saving relationship with Christ, at least that's the intention when the ideas are judged by their best intentions, but it happens sometimes in what I consider the most irreverent ways. Churches uh, invent big, uh, you know, entertaining events and experiences and tricks and props and smoke and mirrors for people to try to draw them, and if they can just psychologically trick them into the truth that Christian life is so much fun, so rewarding, and all your friends are here, and look what we've designed for ourselves, a perfectly satisfying experience. Well, there's never a dull moment as you follow on this golden paved road to Jesus, and it's so much fun, and I worry that in these quote-unquote gospel presentations that we lose the solemnity of the moment. Is that a good reflection of what happens when we are broken over our own sin and come to the foot of the cross realizing the terms of the covenant? Blood had to be shed to save you. And not just any blood. The blood of the one perfect forever sacrifice, Christ in flesh. Heaven and earth had to be moved to save you. Do you consider that? As you bow before the Lord in worship on a Sunday, as you stand in His presence realizing the weight and the expensive price that was paid to save your soul. These covenant terms are meant to indicate to us the solemnity, the seriousness of how man in his sin can be reconciled to the Lord. It is not a light thing. It is not a trivial matter. It is glorious. It is by grace alone. 
It is not by any work of the flesh, yet it is weighty and profound and holy and amazing and magnificent. He goes on in verse 13, that he may establish you today as his people, that he may be your God as he has promised you, as he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. It is not with you alone that I am making this sworn covenant, but with whoever is standing here with us today before the Lord your God and with whoever is not here with us today. And so we see the scope of this event calling to attention an entire people from the youngest to the oldest, from the richest to the poorest. And then there is words of warning. After this solemn occasion, we see a warning against the poison of apostasy, which is falling away from your professed faith. Verse 17 you have seen their detestable things, speaking of the idols of the pagans, their idols of wood and stone, of silver and gold, which were among them. It says, verse 18, Beware, lest there be among you a man or a woman or a clan or a tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and to serve the gods of those nations. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. And that's the reference that the author of Hebrews picks up. Again, Hebrews 12, 15, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. You see, the context of Deuteronomy 29 talks about this people. Each member is a part of this, or they play a role in this covenant and their relationship one to another is affected by their relationship with the Lord. Another way to say this is that the two greatest commandments, loving the Lord your God and loving your neighbor as yourself, are mutually dependent on one another. There is no love for neighbor possible if one does not truly love the Lord, ultimately speaking. And if one truly loves the Lord, then that love will, of necessity, spill over into love for neighbor. Now, if these things are ever separated, if this is ever overlooked, or if the gods of the pagans are entertained, this becomes a poison. It becomes hatred not only for God, but hatred also for neighbor. And this poisonous root of bitterness begins to infect the whole. Many read this passage and restrict its application merely to, you know, holding bitterness in your heart, maybe unforgiveness towards someone else, and that can be part of it too, but the idea is something bigger and broader than that. The idea is that our holiness affects others. Our lack of righteousness, our embracing idolatry can have a leavening effect to the negative to those that are around us, and we need to remember that all of our relationships are now, or their health is now dependent on the gospel. All relationships, the health of all relationships is dependent on the gospel. Not only our relationship with the Lord, but our relationship with others. Notice in Hebrews 12, 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Holiness is a prerequisite for relationship with the Lord. It is something that is part and parcel to our new life in Christ. If it is not there, repentance is warranted. If there's not growing sanctification, 
We need to search inwardly for the poison of apostasy and repent if we find ourselves worshiping idols, entertaining wickedness, losing our step with drooping hands and weak knees in our race. Yet this, as we do so, conversely, as we embrace holiness, as we follow in the footsteps God has prepared beforehand for us to walk in, it will have an effect on others to the positive around us. Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness. The message here is that there is no peace without holiness. This is a message for our world today. There is a deep desire for people to have peace. And there was even revolutions, moral revolutions, and otherwise social revolutions, cultural revolutions that were embarked upon in recent memory in our history with the promise that we will have peace and love and war will become obsolete. But many of those revolutions sought unity under a banner of lawlessness, of wickedness, of doing whatever you felt, of of, uh, embracing relationships without the moral framework and strictures of God's Word. What did they produce in this nation? What did that attitude of peace without holiness, the promise of peace without holiness, what is the fruit of that? It is rotten and it is bitter. You hear it all the time in the news that never have we been as a society more fractured than we are right now. Never have different parties and identities and racial groups and special interests and and warring uh, factions been at each other's throats in our history than to the degree they are right now. Why? Because the the poison of apostasy has affected American life. And now, having believed we could achieve peace without holiness, we reap the bitter fruits of abandoning our first love in Christ and the foundation of healthy relationships. And this is a message that comes to us from the Word of God. It should come as no surprise. Hebrews and Deuteronomy have declared it already. This week, um, there was something interesting in the news that I heard that the Black Plague, or you know, that horrible plague that killed like two-thirds of the world, or maybe more, in during the Middle Ages or what have you. Have you heard this on the news? There's like a resurgence in the same bug, and, and now the plague is returning. There's un, one interesting uh, bit of information when they're trying to track down the source of this plague, and apparently there's the theory that a sacred rite of ancestor worship that is practiced in Madagascar may be responsible for reintroducing the plague into modern life. And in this ritual, dead relatives are, are exhumed. They're dug up from the ground. They're dressed in a white sheet. And people dance with dead bodies of their relatives in the streets for this period, this festival period of time. And then they're buried again or whatever. Good idea or bad idea? That's a question I always ask my kids during devotions. Good idea or bad idea? Well, bad idea, yes, because you can get diseases. But notice the connect. Notice it is not at root of it just a disease problem. This is a sin problem. Where in the scriptures are we commanded to do something like this? This act of gross, idolatrous worship is actually responsible for reintroducing the plague into modern life. There is a relationship between holiness and health in relationships. Uh, What an illustration-rich news cycle last week. I mean, when we go back to the wickedness in our lives, it's like digging up the skeletons of our old sin and dancing with them for a while, and then we reintroduce the plague 
And if we're not careful, this plague could be a plague of apostasy in our midst, and it spreads like gangrene to the congregation. All the, reason, all the more reason to repent and take seriously the admonition. Deuteronomy 29 goes on to tell us that God's glory will not be compromised, will not be diminished, will not be exploited, but He will ultimately have the last word. That is to say, this root of bitterness will not be able to fundamentally restructure the relationship, but will be dealt with, if not by repentance, then by God's hand of judgment, and He will preserve His own. Now we go uh, finally this morning to our last Old Testament passage. Again, three Old Testament passages employed for New Testament exhortation. The redeemed, How the redeemed walk from Isaiah 35 considered root of bitterness in context of Deuteronomy 29. And the last one, and more briefly, will be rejected heir, rejected son, and that is from Genesis 25. Back to our text today, Hebrews 12, 16. See to it, we are told, uh, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. And now this illustrate, or this um, admonishment, this allusion to Old Testament uh, takes a individual example. We've considered a prophetic example, a redemptive historical example. Now we have an individual example of Esau negatively illustrating, uh, walk, not walking in the way laid out before us. Uh, verse 17, for you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected and speaking of Esau, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Just touching very briefly on the context of this passage, let's go back to Genesis 25 for just a moment. Here we see, you know the story, I trust, Jacob and Esau, brothers born for adversity, Jacob trying to get the upper hand as the younger brother to secure the birthright, the primary right to the inheritance, tricked his uh, father by wearing skins. And as the story unfolds, we pick up in verse 29. One, once when Jacob was cooking stew, I'm sorry, uh, this is prior to, so a uh, setup for what I just described. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And in my mind, I've, in my Bible, I've circled that term exhausted. Uh, Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. And I, I, again, it's no mistake that our author draws from the illusion of exhaustion. Here's a man who has been working, running, hunting, exerting force, you know, and then he comes back, and in a state of exhaustion, we see him make a devastating decision. He's asking his brother for some soup. Jacob gives, you know, is a deal maker. He says, verse 31, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is my birthright to me? In this impetuous foolishness, um, he gives up his birthright for a bowl of red stew. Verse 33, Jacob said, swear to me now. So he, Esau, swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. I don't even like lentils that much. I don't know about you guys. 
but it didn't even sound like that great of meal, lentil, stew, and bread. But this illustrates how, how much Esau despised what was truly a value. In a moment of exhaustion, he was willing to trade the intangible yet future promise of inheritance, that which he took by faith, for that which he could take into his face. And it will only satisfy him for 12 hours before his stomach probably you know, started to gnaw at him once again. And maybe at that time he could start to think about you know, the wisdom of this transaction. You just traded your right to be the leader in this family in the redemptive lineage of Christ ultimately for a meal that your brother made of some lentils and bread. There's a lesson here. First of all, there's a hierarchy of priorities, eternal versus temporal. Esau's decision illustrates a principle that the temporal things, the things that pertain to our body, to our experience, to our physical needs, are always to be secondary to the spiritual things. Which should be sacrificed in light of the other? Our Christian witness, in order for us to be safe right now? Our Christian witness, in order for us to be loved by our friends? Or should love of our friends, unchristian as they may be, friends quote-unquote, be sacrificed in light of our Christian witness? Should our safety and relative ease, comfort, convenience in this life be sacrificed in light of our Christian witness, the glory of God and the future that awaits us? Let me put it this way. The Word of God brings clarity to our often feeble mind, influenced by exhaustion in this wearying race that we are running snaps us back to reality and says, don't sell the eternal things for the price of a bowl of soup. Which should serve the other? Esau despised the promises of God. He despised the promises of God because he couldn't taste them right now. Do we do the same? In our exhaustion, and our maybe you are spiritually weary today. Maybe you are, frankly, pretty tired of maintaining, you know, a reasonable Christian witness right now. That's a dangerous place to be. I encourage you to go to the Word and to find in, these, in the source of what we have been speaking of today good reason to strengthen your drooping hands and your weak knees and to make straight paths for your feet. Don't make big decisions in that moment of spiritual exhaustion. Don't despise the promises of God because you can't taste them right now. I need something real like lentils in my mouth. The context of Hebrews 12 speaks to us about the value of discipline. Even though we are going through exhausting circumstances, we are to take encouragement from our text in Hebrews. If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Esau rendered himself an illegitimate child, that is, he disinherited himself. Jacob became the legitimate son because he did not embrace the discipline of waiting a little longer for a meal and not trading eternal things for the temporal, as it were. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father's spirits and live? Imagine if, if Isaac had been standing there or overheard the conversation between Jacob and Esau and said, Esau, come here. You're about to trade 
Look, on, look over the hill there. You see all those flocks as far as the eye can see and some so far you can't? That is yours one day. Do you really think it's worth a bowl of soup? Let's rethink this. What if Esau said, whatever, Dad. Uh, I'm hungry. I'm about to die. Get out of my face with these ideals. I'm going to have soup, okay? He sat down and had soup. Who's the noble individual in this circumstance? The father who disciplines his son. Who's the idiot in this circumstance? The son who lives for his next mouthful. They disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best for them, but he, the Lord, disciplines us for our good that we may, again, our theme, share his holiness. And so we see these things begin to be tied together. Later it says in our text that Esau, in a sense, regretted this decision. You know that afterward, verse 17, he desired to inherit the blessing. He was rejected for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. And this verse can appear confusing. He wanted to repent but wasn't able to. I don't get it. Well, 2 Corinthians 7.10 tells us there are two kinds of sadness, um, so to speak. One that leads you know, uh, to repentance and one that leads to death. Esau was not repenting, I submit to you, of his own decision. But he was begging Isaac in the final, uh, at that final moment to repent of Isaac's decision. If you read chapter 27 of Genesis 30-38, he begs and pleads, that is Esau begs and pleads with Isaac, oh, you know, don't do this, give me. He wants Isaac to repent of his decision to give the birthright to Jacob. He's not repenting of his decision of eating the lentil soup. And so we have before us a great example, an individual example in, his, in uh, the history of the Word of God to illustrate the seriousness of this charge. Which one will we be? Will we be the son that embraces discipline, recognizing that our Father loves us in doing so, or will we be like Esau? who trades the glories of the future for the satisfaction of the moment. I'm sure that we are all in certain points in our life of late guilty of displaying Esau-like behavior. But there is repentance for us, praise the Lord. And there are these verses, these sources of meditation that we can return to. The Lord's table, in fact, is a call to true repentance, communion today. May our faith be stirred by this means today so that we confess during this meal as truly as we taste these elements, we taste all the promises of the gospel in Christ in his perfect time. You know, Esau, didn't, he was willing to sell his birthright because he couldn't taste it and he traded for lentil soup because he could taste it. There is a grace, even in communion today, to remind us that what we taste in symbolic anticipation right now at the Lord's table, we will taste ultimately and fully in glory if we but remain faithful, hanging on to Christ, and endure on this highway to holiness. Keep this in mind as we celebrate the Lord's table today. Let us pray in transition. Dear Lord, we thank you for the, for the instructions that come from your holy word. We thank you that in your word is sufficient means for us to stand 
and even to be rejuvenated, to be strengthened when our limbs are out of joint spiritually and when we are exhausted from running our race. I pray that you would pour into our souls strength for the task at hand, even at your table today. As we confess our sins and realize, Lord, that we sell often so short ourselves when the things of you are so precious and valuable and absolutely secure in Christ our Lord. Remind us as we taste the bread of your broken body, dear Jesus Christ, that was torn to propitiate our sin. Remind us of your blood that was spilled on Calvary's tree as we drink the cup this day, the blood that is necessary for the remission of sins. And let these things, your word proclaimed in this worship and fellowship that we've experienced today, strengthen us for the race. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.